0: Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a fun show for you this evening. Matt Yonkin is here, as you can see, and uh, I'll do a brief introduction. Usually do this uh, separately, but we're just trying to catch up. On uh, time, and uh, have a, a really great evening set for you this evening. First, a couple of quick notes. Anyone going to Oshkosh, please come and find us there. We're running our snag some swag promotion. You hunt down uh, one of us here from Social Flight, and we've got some very cool things to give away if you catch us when we're when we still have some stuff on us. And so with that, I would like to introduce Matt Yunkin. Matt Yunkin is one of my favorite performers. His Beach 18 performance is likely the most unusual act on the air show circuit, basically because the Beach 18 was never designed for aerobatic flight, but that doesn't make it incapable of doing it or any less beautiful. He's a third generation pilot, the son of legendary airshow pilot Bobby Yunkin, and grandson of Jim Yunkin, who's well-known for designing the Century and True Track autopilots Most recently, Matt's been dedicating his time to preserving the stories of what some may call the greatest general aviation uh, group of civil aviators, uh, very affectionately known as Freight Dogs, and we're going to talk about it all tonight. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Matt Yunkin. How are you doing, Matt?
1: I'm great. It's good to be here.
0: Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Well, thank you.
1: Like I said, it's an honor to be a part of this. I really do appreciate it.
0: So, um, I want to start with the beginning. You, you, when we talk about your background, your family tree just just goes in one line of famous people in general aviation. Tell me a little bit about that and what it was like to grow up in that world.
1: Well, I it was it was definitely a different way to grow up. I mean, I, I had a very wonderful childhood, and uh, I've uh, been privileged to uh, spend a lot of time with some really neat people uh, as it pertains to all of the different facets of aviation. Uh, you know, my, both of my grandpa's brothers were naval aviators during World War II, and so they had uh, um, that tie and th- that legacy that I was uh, fortunate enough to get to hear about growing up. My my great uncle Bob actually was an uh, instructor in the Navy in Beach 18s. He taught multi-engine transition training for the Department of the Navy uh, in their SMBs and JRBs, which is basically the airplane I'm doing an air show in today. So that ties all the way back there. Uh, My grandpa uh, was just a little bit late or a little little young to join up in time to be a part of World War II. So he ended up uh, uh, joining the Army and using the GI Bill to put himself through college where he earned a degree in electrical engineering. And he developed several different uh, notable uh, aviation instruments, though the the one he's most famous for is the Century Series Autopilots. And so he did that. He uh, retired from autopilots and built a couple of fantastic air racing replicas and restored a whole bunch of antique airplanes. And then he got bored with that and got back in the autopilot industry and developed the first digital autopilot for experimental aviation. So he... I yeah, had three very successful careers doing different things. And, uh, and of course, my dad was an on-demand charter pilot. You know, he started out as an airmail pilot in Beach 18s and then uh, eventually became an on-demand freight operator and uh, did air shows as a sideline. And, you know, here I am today as a result of all of that background.
0: That's fascinating. I didn't even realize that. You know, I said that the lineage was just one straight line. I didn't realize it was your great uncle that – probably was the first in the beach 18 pilot line.
1: It was, that's actually, uh, how come we ended up with a C model twin beach that, that my dad put into the airshow arena in 1988. Uh, uncle Bob actually took the, so during world war two, basically all of the twin beaches out there, whether they were bombardier trainers, navigators, like the one I fly or multi-engine transition trainers, um, Gunnery trainers, all, all of those airplanes were basically equipped the same way as it pertained to the airframe. And after the war, the ones that were still in service with uh, the Navy and the Army Air Corps went back to Wichita and were remanufactured into D model H 18s, which is all, all the low cabin twin beaches you'll see on an airshow ramp or D models. So they were either built in 1946 or later, or they were remanufactured in 1946. They put a, a heavier spar in them, lengthened the nacelles. They put a different landing gear under them. They changed the incidence of in the tail so they'd hold more weight in the back and go a little faster. And my Uncle Bob actually took the Navy's first airplane uh, it off and went back six weeks later and picked it up. And as he flew it back to the Navy base, he said they run it said it never flew right again so years later my dad fell in love with uh, twin beaches as a kid i guess uh, one of them came into the service center uh, uh, at mitchell industries where my grandpa was building autopilots to have an autopilot installed and that's when dad thought that was the neatest airplane he'd ever seen and he ended up like i said flying mail and freight in the later model airplanes with a high cabin and all that and dad said the one crazy idea that he couldn't sleep off after being up on, you know, for three or four days at a time, uh, making all this money hauling freight was doing aer- an aerobatic demonstration in a twin beach. And my grandpa and, and his brother, Bob had bought just the right airplane because they wanted to see model twin beach just to play with, you know, as a couple of aviation collectors and that airplane was sitting outside, uh, on the ramp in Springdale, after dad brought it home from, uh, from where it came from, he said it was lighter and faster than any beach he'd ever flown. And one thing led to another, he did his first show in that 1988. So, and here, here we are in 2022 and I'm still doing air shows in a C model twin beach and I'm doing night shows with it. And, you know, it's so this, this story started back in the early 1940s for my family that, put me here today doing air shows on the Twin Beach.
0: That is so amazing. I didn't even realize that that the vast majority of the Beach 18s that are out there were all remanufactured ones. And, and, and it's also fascinating that they went to do that, and yet, of course, you were saying that they flew better before that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, my, uh, my show beach will fly comfortably 20 miles an hour slower than my freight beach stalls. So and it's it's just a totally different. Uh, it handles totally different. It's still a twin beach, you know. the The it does some neat things, but the uh, the principles of flying it, you know, doing single engine operations and the way you load it and CG and all that stuff, they're they're very similar in that regard. You know, uh, we didn't you know, we weren't able to untrain all of the important safety aspects of you know uh, flying a beach eighteen when we you know, put smoke on the other one and started doing silly stuff with it.
0: <laughs> so were they basically just trying through the D model to, to make it a more utilitarian, kind of tame down some of that and increase the load ability and the safety factors?
1: That's correct. You know, the airplane, uh, the D model is more, it, it will carry more and it goes, it's supposed to go a little bit faster, but it flies more like a King Air you know, the D model and then the E model that, you know, we have that's the freighter that I'm hoping we'll talk about here in a little bit. Oh yeah. They're, they're, those are very stable instrument platforms that with very long range and, uh, you know, they fly more like a corporate, you know, a heavy twin that, you know, they still use for corporate work today. And the show beach flies more like a big cub, so.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And, and it's it's so wild to think, I mean, let's show a couple quick pictures here. I wanna show some people. Uh, about the aircraft that we're talking about. And, of course, you've got this. I want to talk about this in a bit, your iconic night show, which I absolutely love, uh, absolutely love seeing this. And um, there's something about those two radials going (laughs) for a night show that you just can't beat.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, it's a wonderful flying airplane it's very honest it's a good platform and as you can see it's got a lot of room and a lot of interesting places to hang lights on it
0: yeah so, <laughs> that's for it, sure it it and uh let's find a a daytime picture of that to show everybody here because it's uh it it is it's a beautiful aircraft um that's that is for sure have you flown others that are in to the to the i guess I'll call it the the un Uninformed that are kind of in the similar look and feel and world of that, like the Lockheed's and things like that. Have you ever tried any of those?
1: Uh, I've never flown a Lockheed. I'd like to. Um, you know, there's everybody has a different opinion. My dad always said that a Beach 18 was just a Lockheed, they took all the ugly out of it. But. Uh, <laughs> but if you put a if you put a lockheed and a twin beach on the ramp side beside the lockheed looks like it was handcrafted by an artist and the beach looks like it was stamped out of uh, you know very rudimentary parts so they're, uh, they're they're very similar looking but they're also very different and I, I would assume they probably fly quite a bit different as well
0: wow so the Beach 18s where that's what you grew up around and and tell me a little bit about what it takes to transition an aircraft like that into uh, using it in an aerobatic environment? Because obviously the most famous person to ever do that uh, so far is is Bob Hoover. And yet when I think of who's number two, it's you.
1: (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. I can't take credit for it. So like I said, my dad pioneered the concept and he did it for 15 years before he passed away. So I just kind of picked up the family business and kept it going um, after um, he was no longer with us you know, and uh, and then I ended up doing the light show on my own, you know, a couple years later. But uh, as far as uh, equipping the airplane and getting the F.A.'s blessing to do that, uh, the airplane had to be put in experimental uh, exhibition category, you know, and the only modifications to the airframe are the addition of a smoke system and a G-meter. So, the G-meter and the panel to, you know, make sure I'm not pulling too hard on it. And uh, we carry a you know, a bunch of smoke oil as you can see in the in the pictures. So uh my dad was able to uh, gain that approval from the little rock fizdo uh based on a relationship he had with him. He was going down there taking a one thirty five check ride from him every six months in his freight beach, And he became such good friends with some of the uh uh examiners down there. I mean I remember one guy that uh uh, that ended up giving me my multi-engine rating when I was 17. Uh, he was, his name was Rick D'Angelo, and he and dad rode motorcycles together. And they became such good friends. But anyway, uh, with dad's, uh, credibility that he gained in the freight market and, uh, uh, grandpa's creativity that he had gained through all of his, uh, uh, restoration work, uh, dad found just the right guys to, uh, you know, print a set of operating limitations for just this one airplane. But they still, they knew if there, if anybody could do this, it'd be Bobby Young. He was already, a, yeah, he was a very gifted aviator and already a, a very uh, a notable airshow performer, you know, for the work he'd done in the T-6 and some other stuff he'd flown. and But they were still skeptical. So when they uh, uh, showed up, I believe it was at Huntsville, Arkansas, they uh, created a wavered airspace, and Dad went out and was going to demonstrate for the FAA, you know, what he was going to do with this airplane, and the deal was, you know, you, you go out you do your maneuvers, you land, and when you get done, uh, don't touch the G meter. We want to crawl up in there and see just how hard you're pulling on the airplane. So anyway, the FAA watched the whole show, and Dad had a, you know, habit of carrying a glass of ice water with him when he would get in the Twin Beach to go do anything. anything. And what he ended up doing is he'd drink the water, he'd throw the ice out the window and throw the cup in the back. And then when he got to wherever he was going, he'd clean the trash out and move on. Anyway, he set this cup of ice water that he wasn't done with down between the seats on the floor just ahead of the spar cap. And when the FAA crawled up in the airplane after the demonstration to look at the G-meter, they he kind of stumbled and tripped and looked down and saw that glass of ice water sitting there on the floor without a drop spilled out of it. <laughs> I just look at my dad and shook his head and left. He didn't he didn't check anything else. He signed off the paperwork and the rest is history.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Perfect perfect 1G maneuvers. Tell, tell, me, tell me what the what the routine entails. Like what what are the types of things that you're actually doing that we're going to see in next week uh in your routine.
1: Well, uh the airplane uh will do rolls, point rolls, um uh loop and eight turnarounds uh, and then I'll uh, uh, dirty the airplane up put the gear and the flaps out and do what we affectionately refer to as the elephant walls and so uh, you know the the show starts and ends to that corny pink elephant song parade music and uh, you know which kind of capitalizes on an obese airplane trying to work up the energy to roll over and do aerobatics. <laughs> so uh, it works out great but the the, the middle of the the show was done to a more graceful soundtrack that that really complements the the beauty and grace that you know that the airplane has. I mean, there's you you can't really you, you don't tell the airplane what to do. You ask it politely and wait on <laughs> it to get it done. And uh, so it, the uh, the appearance from the outside is that the aerobatics are very smooth and graceful because that's really the only way you can do them in a Beech team. But it works that's- great.
0: That's absolutely wonderful. I mean, I, and thinking back on what you just told me about the story, of uh, of how working with the FAA and doing that demonstration, that does beg the question. You know, what's the what's the internal family lore of the first time that he actually did the aerobatics in the plane? Because obviously, he, he, it's not like he went out there for the FAA and said, "Okay, so I'm going to try this for the first time in front of you."
1: Well. Uh, I I will not use names because the statute of limitations may or may not have run out on this story, but uh, (laughs) shortly after after my dad married my mother, uh, they moved up to Rapid City, South Dakota, where he took on a job flying night airmail in Beach 18s, and he ended up, uh, on his first stop uh, on the mail run, he ended up meeting another fella uh, that was working for a competitor. And they actually became very good friends. So the the story goes that my dad would hurry up and load his freight as fast, or load his mail as fast as he could, and the other guy would take his sweet time loading his up so that they could end up meeting in the air someplace between the destination and doing formation stuff and messing around. And anyway, uh, apparently one night uh, the other fellow was – uh, was out minding his own business. Dad called him on the radio. Hey, where are you at? You know, and he gave him a position report. And Then there was some banter back and forth, followed by tally-ho, don't move. And so this poor fellow's looking around. You know, he's got his hands glued to the yoke. He's looking around, and he looks back through the windows, the passenger windows in the, in the cabin area over the sacks of mail, and sees this white flash go by. And so he looks out out the side window, and there is the plan form of a a fully loaded Twin Beach. It's probably got 1,500 pounds of mail in it, barrel rolling around the one that this poor fellow was flying. (laughs) So anyway, apparently some obscenities were said, and Dad's response to all of that was he parked his airplane out in front and says, all right, it's your turn. And uh, I have not heard how the story ended. Apparently, that part—that's—that's uh, that's all he's willing to talk about. But so anyway, <laughs> that this dates back to the mid 1970s, and and I can assure you that there's not a Twin Beach on earth that somebody hadn't rolled in the middle of the night. I mean, <laughs> get bored going straight level, and I'm sure you know the the uh, you know the urge to just do something to stay awake takes over. So and they, they do roll really nice. So.
0: So that's anyway. what I was going to ask, is, what, is how, how do they roll?
1: <laughs> they, they roll very nice. At least, at least the red and black one does.
0: <laughs> so um, now, the, obviously, the, you're, you went through a restoration recently of an aircraft that is near and dear to your family. Tell me the story about how uh, this plane, which I'm going to show here, which was in your family, found its way home so
1: that I'm very sentimental about that airplane. Um, I, uh, you know, I grew up in an aviation family and I can say with certainty that about 85% of the memories I have, uh, growing up, uh, that have an airplane in them somewhere have that airplane in them. You know, it was either the centerpiece of the story or it was in the background while something else was going on. But that airplane was always, always around. And, uh, so my, the way it worked, I told you, they flew. Dad flew night air mail, uh, then he moved to Malden, Missouri after that and flew some more night air mail. And then when he moved back to Arkansas, where uh, my parents were originally from, uh, he bought a Beach 18 of his own and modified it for cargo and started hauling freight it. And I don't know why, uh, around the time I was born, Dad sold that original Twin Beach and bought the one that you see in the pictures. So shortly after I was born, he acquired this airplane, and he hauled freight in that airplane until I graduated high school. So he personally put 8,000 hours on that airframe all by himself. Wow. Anyway, I grew up, you know, oiling and fueling and washing that airplane, And, and during the Christmas rush when I was out of school, I got to go on some of the freight routes, and it was just magical. I mean... There, it was one of uh, three airplane, three twin beaches that would take off from Springdale, Arkansas about the same time, and then another one left Fort Smith, and another one left Texarkana, and then there was, I think, a, another one that may have come from Little Rock or Oak City, and all of these airplanes would descend on Dallas-Fort Worth uh, with their UPS cargo to offload and be reloaded and sent back out at night to the, you know, do their deliveries. And you can imagine the commentary on the air-to-air frequency. I mean, it's better than any, you know, any stand-up comedy show you could ever imagine. I'm sure there were ham radio operators and people with scanners at home that would tune into the the Freight Dog show as it passed over their house at a certain time every night. And so it was just it was just incredible to get to witness that as a kid. But you know, the airplane. Um, like I said, he sold it when I graduated high school, and uh, it went to uh, a couple different fellows, and a friend of mine ended up with it, and he uh, had it out in, in Western Kansas. And he, he uh, flew it for a little bit, and then partially disassembled it because he was gonna restore it and make it absolutely perfect. Well, you know, life gets in the way, and 18 years later, after it had been sitting, you know, not moving for 18 years, basically, uh, he called me up and said, hey, you need to come get this thing or I'm gonna put it at trade plane. So we made a deal that I couldn't refuse on it. And uh, uh, my mechanics, Jeff Gibbs and Tyler Hankel and I spent the better part of a month over four different trips working on this airplane, you know, 12 hour days, uh, just as long as I could keep those guys out there before they needed to get back for other obligations. Uh, and we ended up flying at home, so.
0: Wow! So there's a picture of you guys working on it uh, uh, right there, and uh, can't can't quite tell if that's you on one on one part of the engine.
1: <laughs> no, those are that's Jeff and Tyler. Jeff is uh, my crew chief. He's been working on uh, the, the uh, show beach for the last 16 years, and that's him on the floor in the blue shirt. And Tyler's up there on the ladder, hiding behind that cylinder. But uh, these guys were they're actually at the airport as we speak. Getting that airplane ready for Oshkosh. Uh, we, we have a pair of fresh overhauled engines uh, just hung on it and some brand new propellers from Hartzell Aviation. And uh, I was at the airport running the airplane before I rushed home to be on your program tonight. And when we're done here, I'm probably going to go do a taxi test. So <laughs> we're, uh, yeah, we're, we're burning the midnight oil trying to get her ready to go so we can uh, get back up there and. Try to collect some more of those freight stories that we uh, that we were so excited to get last year.
0: Are you uh, you excited to put that uh, that Hartzell prop on? I know we we're, we're partners with Hartzell as well. We just put a a Hartzell Navigator on our uh, Bonanza thing thing climbs like it doesn't like to be on the ground anymore. Um oh, uh, you looking forward to having that on there?
1: Yes, sir. Yeah, they're, we they're hung on there and they the engines made noise yesterday and the props are just as smooth as silk. I isn't mean, that, isn't that you know, my, my my show beach has the ham standards on it. You know, they're two-bladed props and they're noisy and they, they're, they excuse me, they're perfect for the air show work, but the hardsoles are just so quiet and smooth. I mean, it's like sitting between a pair of turbines. It really, <laughs> really is. And, uh, you know, it's funny, th- th- this airplane, you know, it flew home with the hardsoles uh, that were on it when I reacquired it. And like I said, it had sat for 18 years Did the test flight with it. Well, all right, let me back up real quick. So we had driven out a couple of times to work on the airplane and driven home. The last time we went out there, we were getting close and to save time, I loaded my mechanics up in the show beach. We flew out to Western Kansas and parked the beach. And before we got out, I said, all right, fellas, Friday afternoon, we're going back to Arkansas on a twin beach. I hope it's the one that's in the hangar, but just in case it's not, we've got one here. So either way, we're good to go. Well, anyway, long story short, we did the test flight. Uh, everything worked flawlessly, and uh, then we uh, loaded up and came back home. So uh, one, of my, one of the guys had to get home early. Tyler had to get home early, so he borrowed a truck uh, and drove back to Arkansas on Friday. Well, Sunday, Jeff and I flew the freight beach home. And then Monday, I got in the truck and flew or drove it back out and jumped to the Show Beach and brought it home. And that was the noisiest, shakiest ride I've ever had in an airplane. Was getting back in that Show Beach and coming back to Arkansas. <laughs> After flying the freighter with the, the the quiet Hartzell propellers on it, you know, I it, it's just the, the airplanes are so totally different. It's like getting out of a Cadillac and jumping on a Harley. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of took the fun out of it there for a while.
0: Just, just briefly until you realize that you're going to be going upside down and all the other stuff.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I had to get used to it again. (laughs) So the white airplane with those hard propellers will definitely spoil a person. It really does. Oh man,
0: I can, I can only imagine. Um, Tell me about what's involved in maintenance on one of those planes. Cause uh, you're certainly, uh, you've got two guys working on it. It certainly sounds like it's a bit of a project. Is, is it all uh, most of that story about restoring that 18 years of inactivity and putting it back together, or or is it a maintenance-heavy aircraft to begin with?
1: Well, it's it's really the inactivity, to be honest I with
0: you. soccer.
1: No. Uh, yeah. Okay. Go on. I'm I'm on the phone. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. My son uh, knows that when I'm preoccupied, and I need to get rid of him. He can bring cookies and suckers and whatever <laughs> else, and I'm a pretty easy sell. So. <laughs> Anyway, uh, the inactivity was uh, really it for this airplane. Um, it it uh, you know like I said we we had the engines gone through. We've got the new propellers for it, courtesy of Hartzell, that we're very grateful for. And uh, the airplane, when I purchased it, it came with all of the spare parts that the previous owner was planning on restoring it with. So we while we had the engines off we pulled the gear out from under it and replaced the slide tubes and the chains and the sprockets and the pulleys and uh, you know all the bushings and bolts and bearings, everything it takes to make that gear go up and down, we, we put in there brand new. So yes, it's labor intensive, but we're doing stuff to it now that we should never have to mess with again.
0: Mm. Uh, as so it's for- It's mainly uh, restoration more than maintenance. That's
1: correct. Uh, as for the show beach, you know, it has been a restoration in, pro- in progress for many years. And every year it comes out of annuals better than it was the year before. But um, yeah, I'll, we'll go do a show with it, you know, put 10 or 15 hours on it over the course of a weekend. Every Monday morning it comes back and uh, Tyler pulls the uh, cowlings off of it and does a complete firewall forward inspection. You know, checking for oil leaks, uh, any any baffles or, uh, duct work that's, you know, vibrated loose, any hardware's missing something that's developed a crack. We've got to fix just little stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So the firewall forward on the airplane, uh, it, it gets a lot of attention every Monday morning, you know, and it's always ready to go by Wednesday. So we can leave Thursday to go to the next destination. Uh, as for the airframe itself, it's pretty straightforward. You know, it's, uh, it's an all-electric airplane. You know, the only hydraulics on the airplane are the brakes, and so uh, you know, pulleys and cables to run the controls. And uh, you know, it's sheet metal from one end to the other, basically. So it's, uh, you know, it's it, the the maintenance uh, practices and procedures on that airplane are pretty standard for any other light one.
0: Yeah, yeah, and of course you got the radials, and that there, there's. There's certainly something special about uh, one, let alone two of those guys. Well,
1: that's true. Dad always said the only thing that sounds better than a Pratt & Whitney R985 is two of them. <laughs> and, uh, and he wasn't kidding. I mean, they, they do make beautiful music together. So, the, and the engines themselves, they're wonderful. They're, they're very reliable. Um, you know, I, I try to take very good care of my engines, you know, we make a lot of noise with them and, you know, I'll run a lot of power during certain maneuvers, but I never overboost them, you know, where we may be turning a little more RPM than the manufacturer says we should, but so does everybody else. But we, you know, never overboost the cylinders and all the power changes are very smooth. So the, uh, the engines are, they've taken really good care of me over the years. And, uh, you know, Tulsa Aircraft Engines has taken very good care of them over the years as well. So very grateful for that support. We couldn't do it without them.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people don't realize that even though these engines themselves haven't been produced in a long time or, or, or are, are quite old, um, they're very, very well supported. They are. They
1: are. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of surplus parts for them, and there are a lot of parts that are being manufactured brand new for them. So, mm-hmm. the engines are becoming more reliable, not less, as time goes by. You know, they have uh, they've developed different procedures for the way that for the way they chrome them, the way they bake the blocks uh, for the you know the mags that keeps the water out. There's a lot of different things that have been done over the years that. You know, really, really uh, cut down on the maintenance and uh, operating difficulties that those engines used to have. So, mm. anyway, I, I truly enjoy flying behind them, or between them, I should say.
0: <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about your project. So, um, we, the, the and I want to be very respectful when I use the term freight dog, because I know that it uh, is one used for those who deserve to use it <laughs> as a term but this is this is your latest passion and i i really really identify with it and think it's a wonderful thing so tell us a little bit about what you're doing well
1: so freight dog i would say i mean it's not a term that i ever used but um there's a lot of people that refer to uh, you know refer to the grungy freight pilots that fly the crappy equipment around as freight dogs and most of the beach 18s that were crisscrossing the country in the middle of the night back in the day were poorly maintained, poorly equipped, and worn out, to say the least. And the uh, the operators were, you know, th- there was something special about flying a twin beach around. I heard one of the f- fellows we interviewed considered it a rite of passage. You know, they said, I think to quote him, he said, uh, you know, a hundred hours in a Cessna 310 uh, is less experience than two hours in a beach 18. Because that airplane has so much more that it can teach you. It's you've got there's so much more to do to, you know, to you know keep it properly cared and cared for and fed. And so anyway, uh, you know, the grungy freight pilots that flew these airplanes around, they they were proud of the fact that they were freight dogs. But to the FBO operators and some of the folks that, you know, the airline pilots and commuter operators that saw them in passing, when they referred to them as freight dogs, they were not paying them a compliment. Mm. So anyway, it's kind of a, um, yeah, like I said, I would consider it a badge of honor that I never was privileged enough to wear. You know, I grew up, my hero was a freight dog. You know, my dad uh, grew a, a big old long nasty beard that probably had squirrels living in it in the winter time, you know, always wore, you know, blue jeans and a button up shirt, you know, under his coveralls, had a shop towel hanging out of his pocket that was always covered in oil you know and he smelled just like the airplane that he made a living in. you know the i mean it the the smell permeated his clothes and the washing machine wasn't good enough to get rid of it so he, he always kind of had that especially during the winter months you know when when the flying got really heavy but um anyway it was it was a really interesting way uh to make a living you know the phone would ring at supper time and uh you know next thing with his food still on the table, he comes back and uh, he's got a backpack, Kisses my mom goodbye, and we may see him the next morning, or it may be a week before he gets home. Just we just never knew. So uh, a lot of the uh, freight pilots out there, uh, you know, they did on-demand operations like that as well. Others of them had scheduled runs. You know, they worked the backside of the clock uh, several days a week, but the. Uh, um, the breed is, you know, getting older, they're getting uh, up up in gears at this point. Uh, you know, it's a type of aviation that just doesn't exist anymore. This was before the, the magenta line that uh, all of the kids are following nowadays, myself included. You know, this was back when, uh, you know, if you had an ADF and a DME in your airplane, you were considered well-equipped. So, anyway... Um, what I'm trying to do is collect as many of the stories as I can from that generation of folks, many of which, uh, you know, moved on to very successful airline careers. Uh, some of them uh, quit the job and quit flying altogether after some of the experiences they had in the Twin Beach or other similar airframes in the middle of the night with the thunderstorms and the ice and the snow and, the, you know, the, the poor navigation options that they had. So there, there are some really hair-raising stories out there uh, that we've heard, and I, it's, we're, just, you know, we're just tipping the iceberg at this point. But my goal is to gather as many of these stories as I can and put them in an archive, which we've decided to use a YouTube channel uh, for that purpose, uh, with the hope that eventually a documentary could be made about, uh, about these folks and what they did uh, for a living and about the airplanes that they used.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's just its just a fascinating facet of aviation. And uh, honestly, most of the guys that did it, they don't talk about it. They don't mm-hmm. want to talk about it. it. It was a scary time in their life. You know, they were you know, uh, very lonely in that airplane after dark all by themselves, You know, probably didn't have much of a home life because they were always on the backside of the clock and gone all the time and uh, the ones that survived it many didn't many many didn't but the ones that survived it uh, were made better for it you know the experience that they gained having to solve problems and stay ahead of an airplane that was always you know trying to give you the finger in one way or the other uh, made them uh, made them much better pilots and that's that knowledge they've been able to you know teach future generations but the further we are removed from that era, uh, the less of that knowledge base is being passed on, if that makes any sense. So, uh, another goal for archiving this stuff for me is, uh, personally so that the, the kids and the grandkids of these aviators, uh, can go someplace and hear these stories. You know, a lot of these stories aren't told around the family dinner table because they're, they're, some of them are frightening, you know, some of them are crude, uh, there's, there's all kinds of different stories out there, but, uh, you know, I, I, wish my son could get on YouTube and listen to his grandfather talk about the experiences he had in the middle of the night in Twin Beach. So, I'm um, what I'm trying to do is give other kids the ability to hear from, from their relatives, you know, and we're wanting to categorize, you know, uh, we're just in the beginning phase of this, but we'd like to be able to tie these to a a type of an airplane or N number or uh, a type of experience, you know, icing, for example, or engine failure on takeoff, or this or that, where you can get on and you can search any of these criteria fields and up pop, uh, you know, these videos of these uh, gentlemen and some ladies, as a matter of fact, uh, that are telling stories about exactly what it is you're looking for. So the archive is the first goal. And like I said, you know, at some point, if we could, you know, do a documentary or somebody could take this information and run with it and make a, I think it would be a fantastic movie if this was ever done.
0: I totally agree. I I mean, it really is amazing and the stories among that, you know, we've had a lot of Wonderful and extraordinarily accomplished pilots and other people in the world on on our show here, and many of them have a history of getting started and getting their hours flying freight or flying checks and flying things like that around at night. And they talk about having lost friends and uh, and others and the things that they learned on their path to maybe the you know cockpit uh, of of a, <laughs> of a big Airbus or a big Boeing, and makes you appreciate that amazing experience that some pilots have who hundreds of people are entrusting their lives to and, um, and kind of wonder what what the difference is between that and the next generation of pilots.
1: That's a fact. You know, and it's interesting. There was an article in Sport Aviation that came out in May uh, that featured my airplanes on the cover, and it was all about the freight dog. Uh, stories that we're trying to collect. And uh, behind the article, they featured three uh, freight pilots, you know, with their uh, grungy attire in front of the Twin Beach. And one of the stories uh, that was, you know, uh, that was in there, of uh, 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 Jeff Shetterly, I'm sorry, uh, Greg Shetterly was the one that uh, that was featured in that article. And he talks about, uh, some friends of his that were out on a twin beach and they went to sleep on the ILS coming into land at their last leg of the night because they'd been up for days and the airplane crashed in Lake Michigan. And separately, I'm at an event this weekend doing something else and another friend of mine comes up to me and says, I didn't know Greg Shetterly, but I worked for a competitor that was on that airport and I drove by, uh, that crash and I saw the tail sticking up out of the water. It looked like a whale and I ran in the FBO and called the police. So your friend Greg is telling a story about friends of his that died in that airplane. And while I was driving into work, I saw it and I reported it to the authorities and I didn't know Greg for 30 years. So that's how tightly connected this community was and how these stories cross tie in so many ways. And you know, for me, um You know, when I started doing aerobatics in the Twin Beach, I had a lot of old timers come up and tell me what they you know, about the freight that they used to fly. They never dreamed the airplane would do what I'm doing with it, and all this and that. And I just would tell them, you know, what you're what you did with your airplane was way more dangerous uh, than what I'm doing with this one. And they'd laugh and they didn't believe me, but I'm I'm serious. You know, I I saw it firsthand. And uh, anyway, when I started doing the night show in particular. Uh, I would get more and more of these stories, and the middle, that the, the, the uh, uh, words that are being broadcast over the PA uh, during the break in my night show are uh, basically a dedication of my performance to the active duty uh, military and veterans and all of the salty old freight pilots that cut their teeth on these fantastic airplanes. And since we started reading it that way, we've gotten more and more and more interest. Well, then, when the Freight Beach uh, re-entered my life, I thought, well, shoot, now I've got, I've got the perfect tool, and I know just the right people to archive this stuff. Uh, you know, now, now I can actually focus on collecting these stories that these people have been telling me for years anyway. And if we could put them in the archive, that'd be fantastic. So, what was fascinating for me was. You know, the airplane reappeared, but while after we made the deal on it, but I hadn't been able to bring it home yet, I started looking around my hangar for some of the stuff I remember from my kid, from my childhood, and I found all of the cargo nets. I found the cot that my dad used to sleep on in the back of the airplane. I found the thermoses that he used to leave with hot chocolate in, you know, uh, when he'd leave the house to go on the freight run. Uh, I found his last ever trip sheet, uh, you know, in the the uh, aluminum uh, clipboard thing that, you know, that had the the uh, last trip he ever made in that airplane that was a, a revenue run for it. Uh, I found the, the cassette tape case full of Tammy Wannett, Jerry Clower tapes, and the Walkman with the homemade apparatus that would plug it into the headset that he listened to in the middle of the night, and uh, just on and on and on. I found all of these pieces, all of this stuff that used to live in that airplane, you know uh, that it just stayed with the airplane, and um, all of that stuff still existed. So when I brought the airplane home, my wife and I put the cargo liner back in it. It still has the, uh, you know, the wooden floor that was in it when, uh, you know, when he was hauling everything from dolphins to car parts, and uh, you know, it's it's really is just a time capsule. So. I had the, uh, a heat curtain made that was similar to the one that used to be in it where you could zip the cockpit up and hopefully keep what little heat you were able to generate from the Janitoral, if it was working, you know, in the cockpit instead of having the drafty air coming up over the freight from the tail. And so we put that back in, brought the airplane to Oshkosh and the interest was just incredible. Um, several people walked by the airplane and just teared up. And they started telling stories to their family members that they'd never told about their time as a freight pilot or as a line guy that was servicing these airplanes in the middle of the night or loading the freight on them. And um, how I knew for sure that I was doing the right thing was we had three or four individuals. um, Well, to describe Oshkosh for your viewers, you just can't. It's aviation mecca. Right. There's a half a million people in 10,000 airplanes that flood that airport over the course of those seven days that that our air venture and so when you've got all of these airplanes and all of these manufacturers and vendors and workshops and all everything that there is to do that is Oshkosh and three or four guys come do their interviews and then leave and then they come back a couple of days later And want nothing more to do than sit underneath the wing of this wore-out freight airplane when there's all this other stuff to do, you know, it just makes you feel like you're doing the right thing. That that's where these fellows were most comfortable. This is they could identify more with this airplane than they could any of the other airplanes on the ramp. And it just makes my heart smile to be able to, you know, present that to people, you know, and, and get the response in return. It's just great.
0: That is absolutely wonderful. And I love the, the kind of commonality and crossover with the fact that you're, you're known for that night air show. And that's what so many of those, it's the environment that, that was so dangerous and, and so challenging in so many ways for those freight pilots.
1: That's right. You know, the stuff I'm doing is when uh, over an airport... In a very controlled environment, when the weather is absolutely perfect, the stars and the moon are out, and uh, it's comfortable to it's comfortable weather to be around. These guys, it didn't matter what the weather was doing. You know, they had to go. Uh, mm-hmm. Not going was not an option. You know, you either uh, if you didn't go, uh, you know, you were either going to get fired. You know, or they'd find somebody that would take your spot. Right. You know, I had another fella tell me that we didn't do a mag check. Before we took off because if we had a dead mag we we're going anyway so you would do the mag check after you returned to the airport after you did your run that way you could tell maintenance about it if you had a problem and hopefully <laughs> while you were sleeping uh the mechanic would fix whatever the problem was because whether they fixed it or not you were going to get back in that airplane and go back out the next night well wow. and so you know I, I could go on and on and on about the stories and about the culture and the lifestyle it was just it was just different back then
0: i so, can imagine tell me what it's like to do a night air show what is it what is that like from we've seen it from the ground and it and it seems unbelievable that that you can do all those maneuvers in the dark essentially what's it like from the cockpit
1: well it's it's a lot of fun it's busy uh it's different than the day show uh, my night show is tightly choreographed to a very powerful soundtrack but I'm actually listening to the music in my headset. And I've got 24 switches and two rotary dials that, that I can that are all attached to different lights in the airplane that I can use to change the uh, appearance of the airplane when it comes back for the next maneuver. Can make it appear and disappear and do all kinds of different stuff. So there it's a twin beach cockpit is our is, is busy and generally busy in the first place. It's even more busy when you're doing aerobatics. And when you're doing aerobatics after dark and you're messing with all of these light switches, uh, the workload doubles yet again. But it's fun. It's, it's really, I feel like I really did something when the show starts and stops, when the music starts and stops. And I was able to use all the switches and I didn't forget anything. And I got all the maneuvers executed at the right spot. So uh, it's challenging, but the challenge is also what makes it a lot of fun. Uh, as far as doing aerobatics after dark, you know, um, when it's not a beautiful moonlit night, you actually have to build a horizon out of, uh, the street lights or the runway lights or, uh, you know, you know other, you know, buildings or passing cars or whatever that's, uh, that you can put a fix on to reference for the maneuvers. And there are times when I use the instruments at night, you know, I'll check, uh, different things more heavily after dark, um, uh, you know, particularly to reset for the next maneuver. So, you know, all the rules are, you know, the rules for aerobatics are the same, but a lot of the variables change. And, uh, it just, it just adds to the challenge. But at the same time, it's the closest thing. I remember dad telling me, um, he took off out of Decatur, Alabama with a load of, uh, car parts heading for Detroit. And he broke out of this, uh, Low overcast, uh, you know, three or four thousand feet, and he said the stars were out and the moon was out, and he had Tammy Wynette playing on uh, the ADF. He was listening to WWL out of New Orleans truck driver station that stays on all night long, and he said Tammy Wynette was singing till I could make it on my own, which was his favorite song in the whole world. He said it was the most romantic setting he'd ever been in, but he it, but he was sad because he didn't have anybody there to share and the when i when i do a night show in the twin beach particularly after it's done and i'm getting cleaned up to land and i pull the props back and i'm just kind of taking it all in the weather is usually so perfect I, I can say it's one of the most romantic settings i've ever been in there's just something magical about being in a twin beach after dark there really is and it's the closest i've ever been to you know um having that lifestyle myself. So I, I really, really do enjoy it.
0: That's so, so wonderful. Well, Matt, I am so looking forward to seeing you next week at Air AirVenture, uh, both performing and also uh, just uh, on the ground to say hi. And I'm sure many other people are looking forward to seeing you there as, as well. Uh, which days are you performing?
1: So I'm performing Monday and Friday during the day. And then I'm doing both night shows, Wednesday night and Saturday night. The freight beach is going to be up there all week as well. We're going to drop jumpers out of it every day, uh, Monday through Saturday for sure, and uh, and it will be parked behind the Charlie Hillard Operations Building, which is just adjacent to uh, you know the the throat where all of the airshow airplanes are parked, and uh, real close to Boeing Plaza. So I think if uh, the layout's the same as it was last year, Goodland, or, I'm sorry, Goodyear Aviation will be right across the street from us. And uh, one of our sponsors that we, we truly appreciate. But I'll be uh, signing autographs at a lot of the sponsor uh, tents and uh, exhibit hall facilities throughout the week. Look forward to seeing a lot of people there. Um, real quick, uh, for more information about me and what I'm doing with both of these airplanes, my website is yunkinair.com. If you type in yunkinair.com/18ry18 Romeo Yankee. Um, it pulls up the, the story of the freight beach, the mission we're doing and the link to the YouTube channel that we're starting to build these archives, you know, put, put these archives on. And we encourage uh, anyone that has any kind of a tie to this industry to come visit with us and come look at the airplane, crawl up inside it, you know, take a trip down memory lane with us and uh, get on film and tell us some of your stories. I'm going to have a full-time camera crew there. Uh, to capture these stories this year. So when the airplane's not dropping jumpers, you know, come by and see it and say hello to us. I'm going to spend as much time there as I can, but uh, when I'm not there, there'll be somebody else there as well. So that's that's about all I got. Like us on Facebook, Yunkin Air Show's on Facebook.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on Social Flight Live. I really do appreciate it, Matt.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Really enjoyed it.
0: Absolutely. Have a wonderful night. You too. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We will be off next week because, of course, we're at AirVenture. Again, track us down for our snag, some swag uh, promo that we're running at the show. Say hi and see if we have something for you. And then, uh, of course, we just released another episode of our No Magenta Line trip. Speaking of magenta lines, the adventure that we did by just wandering the skies. And there is uh, one last installment out there for everyone. And we also uh, released something, a great new build stage on this airplane behind me, this T-51D Mustang from Titan aircraft. Until next time, I would like to thank you all again. We will be back on Tuesday, August 2nd, with uh, all talk about flight helmets and a museum for that by one of the world experts, which is G.M. Bell of FlightHelmet.com. And on the uh, August 9th, we're here with Aaron Fitzgerald doing helicopter aerobatics. And on August 16th, Tuesday, August 16th at 8 p.m., NASA space flight director, pilot, aircraft builder, and writer will be with us, Paul Die. Until next time, I wish you all blue skies.